Know Your Food with Warty, episode 96. For links and more, visit the show notes at knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash 96. Hey everyone, welcome to Know Your Food with Warty. I'm Warty in Southwest Oregon, a traditional food blogger at Traditional Cooking School by Ganalfglins. You can find me at traditionalcookingschool.com and knowyourfoodpodcast.com. I'm so glad you're here. This is the podcast where we're all about embracing whole foods, raised, saved, and prepared with traditional methods. It's fun, it's delicious, and it's healthy. You're on your way to looking good, feeling good, and most importantly, doing good. Good morning, everyone. By the time you hear this episode, Christmas will be over And so I want to take this opportunity to say Merry Christmas, and I hope it was wonderful and blessed. And now let's get into the episode. I've got a great tip of the week for you today. This comes from Erin, who is our sourdough genius at Traditional Cooking School by Ganalfglins. And once again, she has released an amazing recipe on the blog. You can find it at knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash soda bread. What it is, it's the answer to easy sourdough bread couple issues come up when you're making sourdough bread. Well, let's say these are the two main ones. The first one is you're doing sourdough bread and you're just continuing to get dense loaves that don't rise. And that happens a lot. And in fact, last week's episode, knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash 95, I, I went over questions about sourdough. That was in a couple questions. I give a whole bunch of tips. So It's not that you need to throw your hands up in the air and not make regular sourdough bread. There are lots of um, ways to work with that, perfect your process, and get light, fluffy loaves. Um, But today's tip is going to be, uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you in a moment, but today's tip is going to be different than working with your current recipe. Another reason people have difficulty with sourdough bread is the time. Um... It's not that it takes loads of time, but you have to be present and there's certain stages and the kneading. Um, So, you know, maybe you just want to be able to do quick bread. So here's your answer. It's sourdough English muffin soda bread. And I want to tell you where it came from. Well, we have, uh, thanks to Erin, we have a wonderful sourdough English muffin um, recipe. Oh, we make it all the time. I make it here triple batch at least once a week. And so then I'm, we're able to have bread for anything, toast, sandwiches, whatever. We have plenty of them, and I put a whole bunch in the freezer, so they last us about a week. And for, um, oh, I'd say going on nine months, maybe to a year, I've been making them with einkorn flour. And oh, they're so good. So anyway, we love the English muffin uh, recipe for these wonderful English muffins. Well, what Erin has done is she said just, and she she is like this. She just gets inspired and tries things, and they're just so beautiful. But what she did was, um, or let me explain the recipe to you. So the English muffin recipe is so easy. You take your flour, water, starter, combine it. it takes about two minutes to combine it. Get it all in a bowl and combine it. Cover it and let it sour for eight hours overnight. Then Add baking soda and salt, and then you're, you know, I end up with kind of a wet, gloppy dough, so I just, by the spoonful, just kind of transfer it to a um, cast iron pan that's just barely lightly greased for the very first one, and it's on like about three to four on the stove, and I just use a spoon and transfer the dough and kind of spread it out in 
well, depending on the size of the pan, I can fit three or four in a pan. I use a cover and it's like less than 10 minutes. It's probably about five to sort of, um, stove top and then the lids on the pan. So it's kind of like a mini oven and you just cook on either side. And so it's just instant gratification because all you've done is mix your dough to sour it, add baking soda and salt, and then you're cooking your muffins on the stove top. Easy bread that's fluffy and delicious, got a great crumb. So what Aaron did was say, why couldn't I, why couldn't I make bread this way? Because what happens right before you um, cook the English muffins, you add the baking soda, it reacts with the acids in the starter, and it just creates all this lift. And in fact, we've had traditional cooking school members who've had trouble with um, regular sourdough being dense. And what they do is add baking soda right before the bake. And that just assists the yeast because of that acidic reaction. And they get a nice rise. So that's what Erin has done here. She's taken that sourdough English muffin recipe. And instead of shaping into individual muffins... What you do is add the baking soda and salt and you knead for three to five minutes and then you're shaping a loaf in a loaf pan and baking in the oven. And you get this beautiful high risen English muffin bread, uh, soda bread. Oh, it's beautiful. I'm really eager to try it myself. So that's the tip of the week. In spite of the fact that I've spent several minutes telling you about it. I hope you've gotten the impression how easy it is. You mix your flour, water, and starter, let it sour eight to 12 hours, add baking soda and salt, knead for a couple minutes, shape into a loaf pan, and bake. So that sounds really easy, and plus you get the amazing result of a high-risen loaf. Um, so the recipe for you is at knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash soda bread. Be sure to go there because the comments are full of more tips, like people trying alternative flowers and add-ins, um, and it's very inspiring and asking questions. So if you have questions for Erin, that's definitely where you want to go. It's also where you want to go to get the recipe. And so that's the tip of the week how to, well, it's one way to get around the dense sourdough bread issue or the bread takes too long issue. Hi, I'm Wardy, a traditional cooking expert and food blogger at Ganalflins.com. For years, my family struggled with food-related health problems, but we don't anymore. And I'd love to show you that preparing whole foods with traditional methods is easy, delicious, and super good for you too. So just go to traditionalcookingschool.com slash free, and I'll show you how easily you can do it too. I'll give you five free videos that include my favorite traditional cooking techniques, plus printable at-a-glance fact sheets as a handy reference. So if you're ready to start looking good, feeling good, and most importantly, doing good, then visit traditionalcookingschool.com slash free today. Today's podcast has a theme. We are talking about fermenting, and I'm just going to answer a whole bunch of questions on fermentation I've received lately. We've had a couple um, freebies out there that people have been claiming from traditional cooking school. One is a report on uh, fermenting myths, and another is a cheat sheet on fermenting formulas. And so after I send it to people by email, I just ask, you know, what's your biggest fermenting question? What's got you stuck? How can I help? And so I've gotten loads of replies. And so I've selected, oh, about a half dozen of those to answer today. And before I get into them, though, I just want to let you know that I'd be happy to share either of these freebies with any of you. So all you need to do is send me an email, uh, wardee, W-A-R-D-E-E, 
at, um, well, either traditionalcookingschool.com or wardy at knowyourfoodpodcast.com. Both will get to me. And all you do is just let me know that you'd like either the fermenting myths, um, which has some troubleshooting information in it, or the um, the fermenting formula cheat sheet. In fact, you could have both if you want both. But So just send an email and let me know, um, and we'll be happy to send that out to you. Okay, so let's tackle these questions. I'm going to start with Debbie S. She wrote in and said, I have a quart jar with fermenting lid. Not sure where to go with that. I do make kombucha. I love your articles. Thanks so much. I'm new to all of this. Okay, Debbie, this is so exciting because guess what? You practically have everything you need to start fermenting. It's very exciting. If you have a quart jar with a fermenting lid, now all you need is cabbage and salt and you can make sauerkraut or um, you could make a simple apple chutney with um, apples, spices, nuts, raisins. You do need whey or a veggie starter culture. We've got a recipe for the chutney on the blog. I'll include a link in the show notes. Um, you can make salsas or relishes. We do have a lot of recipes inside Traditional Cooking School or the Lacto-Fermentation ebook or my book, The Complete Idiot's Guide to Fermenting Foods. And so all you need for your fermenting vessel is that quart-sized jar so you are ready. The quart-sized jar, salt, and your foods basically is what you have to have. So get started, Debbie. I'm excited for you. And if you need to... Um, you know, ask me any follow-up questions, you can visit the show notes, knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash 96. Um, and I'm just excited for your journey. Okay, next question, Cheryl. Cheryl H. I don't know what it should taste like, so I don't know when I should put it in the refrigerator. And Cheryl's talking in general about ferments, I believe. Um, so I'm going to give you some general answers, Cheryl. But of course, if you have a specific ferment you're working on, you know, what it should taste like kind of depends on what it is. But here's some overall rules. Um, and first of all, let's talk about things that are not taste, okay? Um, one of them is the color of the food changes. In the case of like um, sauerkraut or carrots, you might find they brighten a bit, Um and this isn't always the case, but I find that they can brighten a bit. But also, you know, most cases, maybe the, um, the mixture dulls in color a little bit. So there's a color change. There's a texture change, too. You go from, let's talk about sauerkraut again. I still like a crunchy sauerkraut. Just to put it simply, there's various recipes out there where you could ferment your sauerkraut for a month. Well, I only do five to seven days, so I get a crunchier a sauerkraut. And then I move to um, cold storage, the refrigerator, where it continues to age. And so then it ends up just nice and crunchy. So anyway, in the case of sauerkraut, the texture is going to ideally, for me, stay crunchy. Not You don't, you don't want mushy, um, but it's going to be softer than raw cabbage. So there's a texture change there. Now as far as um, one other thing that's not taste and, and this really varies on the ferment, um, is bubbly. Um, uh, you know, if the, as the ferment starts, you get a whole bunch of bubbles and it may be really bubbly for a couple days. And in fact, that first 24 hours making sauerkraut, maybe even two days, 
you may, you know, all the juices because of the bubble action just spill out of the jar. And so I always put my jar on a towel to catch that so it doesn't make a mess. And the bubble action slows down about the time the ferment is ready to go to cold storage. That's another non-taste thing. Now let's talk about taste. And I'll just start with um, general tips. And then I'll talk about a few things in specific, a few uh, ferments specifically. So in general, your ferment should be sour, uh, salty. It could be bubbly, and it's different than seeing bubbles. This is the internal carbonation, or this is the carbonation that's produced by the fermenting gases, the fermenting organisms producing gases. And so you take a bite, and it's sort of like that, that, um, that kick or that peppery brightness you'd get from a soda. Well, a, a ferment can have that too. So you can just tell in your mouth, oh, this is bubbly, this is carbonated. Um, and then, of course, there's the issue of texture. So in the case of sauerkraut, you're looking for um, it not to be like fresh cabbage anymore, that it's softened, but ideally still crunchy. So, so those are kind of general things. Um, specifically, Every ferment is going to have its own result. So I've brought up sauerkraut a lot. Let's talk about another one that's not sauerkraut. Like let's say we're making my five spice apple chutney. Um, it's not going to get exceptionally sour, but it's going to be less sweet than when you started because the organisms consumed the sugar in the fruit, but they're not going to consume it all in just a couple of days. So it's going to be still, um, still sweet, but it'll be less sweet. Um, the other thing is the flavors kind of meld together and when you do the five spice apple chutney initially and you, you do that five spice it's it's the five spice the Chinese five spice is one-fifth pepper so it's very peppery and strong and you mix up your mixture and prior to fermentation it tastes really strong peppery to me when it's done and ready to go in the fridge that has mellowed and so instead of having this sharp pepper flavor it's just melded with all the other flavors in the chutney and you don't like overpoweringly taste the pepper, you taste everything. Um, so that's one example of what happens with the chutney. In addition, the chutney, I already said, it's not gonna get exceptionally sour. It's also not gonna get exceptionally bubby, bubbly because not all ferments will get really bubbly. You know, your pickles will get bubbly, your sauerkraut's gonna get bubbly. If you're doing a beverage and you're keeping the lid on it, um, it's gonna build up carbonation. And I do want to say, um, in general, putting a lid on beverages, you got to be wary of that uh, because you could have explosions. So definitely, you know, follow a recipe's instructions about when and when not to cover and vessels and things like that. So, um, okay, and then back to the apple chutney. Another thing you might notice, especially with fruits, is um, they're not going to look bubbly and they may not get that bubbly, but they may have this just um, just this slight kick from carbonation. And it, if it ferments too long, it could actually be a um, alcoholic thing because the yeasts and the sugar and fruit, it just, it, it can go alcoholic. So you tend to ferment fruits less, put them in the fridge or cold storage and consume them sooner so they don't get to that alcoholic point. Um, well, I guess I should say that's for the sake of family-friendly ferments. But, of course, there's nothing bad um, if you are an adult that enjoys <laughs> fruits that have turned slightly alcoholic. 
Okay, so I hope that was helpful, Cheryl. Now let's talk about Grace's question. This is Grace S. And she says, my biggest questions were addressed in your report, when to tell uh, when a ferment is done. Um, and And the reason why, safety for sure, so I can serve without being worried of wrong bacteria. Now here's her question. How about storage when you don't have a lot of refrigerator space but want to make quantities that you don't have to be fermenting every week? Okay, Grace, um, you have a couple choices, but basically storage on ferments need cold. So if it's not your fridge, it's a cold cellar that stays about fridge temperatures. Um, so if it's something that's warm in the summer, you know, it's not going to work. It needs to stay um, between 32 and 50 50 some degrees so it needs to be cold so if you don't have that which not many of us do anymore in modern homes um, your next option is freezer people often ask can I freeze ferments doesn't that kill the the probiotics Um, you know what's less likely to happen in the freezer or what's more likely to happen in the freezer is freezer burns so as far as the probiotics go, no, they're not dying. I mean, some may perish slowly over time, but freezing is a is a great option to just sort of um, preserve a ferment in the state it is. Um, in cold storage, like the refrigerator or a cellar, your ferments will continue to age. The temperature is lower. The organisms are still active, though not as active as they would be at room temperature, so they'll continue to age and mellow and, you know, ferment very slowly over time. In the freezer, that activity just stops because everything just stops cold from the cold freezer. So that's the kind of difference between the two. But freezing is a great option. In fact, there's a couple companies out there. Well, one, um, Wise Choice Market. They have wonderful organic fermented vegetables and they come in pouches and they come frozen. And what you do when you get them is you just put them in your freezer and then you take them out as you need them. So you can do the absolute same thing at home. Um, And then just to avoid freezer burn, I would, you know, double or triple Ziploc bag um, just so so it it continues to taste good. Okay, thank you, Grace. All right, um, our next question comes from Deborah, Deborah M. She says, my present challenge is working with gluten-free sourdough. If you have any pointers here, it would be much appreciated. Well, Deborah, I do have a couple pointers, and I want to point you to a great resource. I've done a little bit of gluten-free sourdough. Um, In our our sourdough e-course in traditional cooking school, one of our teachers is Sarah Kay, and she has done some work with gluten-free sourdough um, and pretty much has adapted all of our recipes, all the sourdough recipes, to be gluten-free. That's a great resource, and it's available in the sourdough ebook or in the sourdough e-course. Um, and she provides instructions for making a water kefir-based sourdough starter. And what you have to remember, or let me say this, and then we also have an um, allergy-free cooking e-course, and in that we have a section on gluten-free sourdough um, that I did myself. And what you have to remember about all of this is, and I'm sure you know because you're probably familiar with gluten-free baking in general, is you know, you're not going to be creating any kind of doughs that behave like um, gluten-containing sourdough doughs, okay? You're you're not kneading, there's no springy dough, it's mostly batters, and and all that varies is how thick they are. And if you need binders, you're looking at 
well, eggs, if you can do eggs, otherwise you have to look at alternatives like flax seeds, chia seeds, bananas, gelatin, you know, alternative binders. Um, so the one thing that's tough is, you know, regular bread. And you, when you do gluten-free sourdough, you're creating a, a batter and putting it in a loaf pan. And there's some lift from sourdough um, that creates the risen loaf. And so you have this you know, kind of batter, thick batter that turns into a loaf. And as far as a tip goes, um, you know, I, I suggest that water, that water kefir based sourdough starter. Um, I also suggest when you're mixing it with flours, I mean, you can use whatever flour blend you want in general on a gluten-free sourdough loaf. It's just the more individual flours you choose, the better to make a mix. Like if you were going to do all, um, brown rice uh, flour for the flour mixture. That's going to be far less, it's going to, it's, it's not going to work as well as if you blended brown rice flour and millet flour and buckwheat flour and some tapioca, you know, the, the more, the more flours, and usually you go for three to four that you blend together for your flour base, the better result you have, because all these gluten-free flours have their little quirks and tastes. And so if you can kind of dilute them by mixing, you get a better end result. Um, so what I'm going to give you in the show notes is a link to the um, water kefir starter. I'm also going to give you a link to the real expert on gluten-free sourdough, and that's Sharon Kane. She has wonderful online materials. She has a wonderful book, The Art of Gluten-Free Sourdough Baking. She also has um, mixes that I've tried. In fact, I have a video online of of doing one. So I'll make sure that's in the show notes for you as well. But in general, if you want to check out Sharon Kane's resources, a ton of them from starters to kits, to books, to videos, go to knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash GF sourdough, and then you'll see what Sharon Kane has. And I'll put links to all this in the show notes, knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash 96. Okay, now we have a question from Amanda A. My most urgent fermenting question is about my gingered carrots. The recipe called to shred them, which was fine. At first they seemed great, but after a few days in the fridge, they are slimy or sticky. Is that normal? Are they ruined? I've never had anything else do that. Okay, Amanda, a couple thoughts for you. Number one, slimy isn't desirable. It doesn't mean that they're bad. Um, it, it, it is a situation where people don't usually care for them being slimy. So it doesn't, it doesn't mean they're bad, like I said. So what you could do is put them in a colander, um, drain them, and then rinse them with cool water, and then make some fresh brine. And my normal um, brine recipe is six tablespoons fine uh, sea salt to a half gallon of water. So you can scale that. You could do three, um, three tablespoons to a quart of water and, and continue on down because you probably won't need very much of this when all is said and done. So what you're going to do is take those rinsed, um, those rinsed carrot shreds, you know, taste them. Are they still slimy after you rinse them? If not, let's try repacking them, put them back in the jar and cover with that fresh brine mixture and then put back in the fridge and just let it mellow and kind of resettle and take it out in a day and see how they are. Maybe you can save them. If they are slimy, then you'll have, you might want to toss them. It doesn't mean they're bad, but I don't think they'll be enjoyable. I do want to ask you a question. Did you use whey as your starter? Because this can happen with whey. 
it can also happen with water kefir being used as a starter is that you end up with a slimier ferment. And like I said, it's not, um, not necessarily bad or spoiled, but it's not as pleasing. So a lot of people prefer, and me included lately, prefer not to use whey for our veggie ferments. Um, I either double the salt or use a veggie starter culture. There's Caldwell's, there's Body Ecology, both of which you can get at culturesforhealth.com, or there's a veggie starter culture from homesteadersupply.com that's really nice I've been using um, mostly lately. And so those take the place of whey. You can also use... um, juice from a previous ferment as your starter culture and those because whey sometimes gives you a slimy result um, that's why a lot of people prefer the other options so I'm thinking it was whey if you if you based your um, this batch of shredded carrots uh, with whey so I hope that was helpful okay next question from Karen H How do fermented foods affect candida and parasites? There are so many opinions, I'm interested in yours. The five-spice chutney looks awesome, by the way. I'm looking forward to trying it. Well, Karen, you will love the five-spice chutney. And I want to say, if you don't care for five-spice, some people don't, feel free to use um, cinnamon or cinnamon and cloves and nutmeg, uh, just other spices to taste. Okay, so let's talk about fermented foods with candida and parasites. Well, um... My opinion is they are crucial in fighting overgrowth because um, it's one thing to deprive the the pathogens in your body of their food sources, which is sugar. It's another thing to uh, fight them and repopulate your gut with the good guys. And that's why fermented foods are so important. Having said that, number one, um, in serious cases of candida or parasite overgrowth, Um, some serious detoxing is probably happening in the person and fermented foods may be too much. They could have just high detox reactions and be miserable. So in this case, less is more. So it's really important to go slowly and just use a tiny amount as much as the person can tolerate. Um, And just, it's okay to take it slowly. Another thing is some people may have a reaction Um, to the fermented foods and not just because of the uh, detox symptoms from the um, organisms in their body kind of you know having that battle it could be from like some people get headaches from yeasts or they have a histamine reaction well those need to be considered carefully and I do know of people who have candida or parasite overgrowth who simply have to abstain from fermented foods for months to years until they do that initial healing to reduce the overgrowth um, and starve the organisms. And some people may not ever go back to fermented foods. It's really a personal case. So that's why my answer is not um, yes, absolutely, or no, absolutely. I think in general, it's a, it's a wonderful and important strategy for healing, but not everybody can do it and not everybody can do it at full strength. So we have to take it um, on a personal a personal basis. How is the person reacting? And that's how you decide um, the role of fermented foods in healing from candida and parasites. I do look forward to hearing your thoughts on it, Karen, and the show notes are at knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash 96. Next question is from Marie. She says, my biggest challenge is the money to get stuff needed. Okay, Marie. Well, uh, let's not 
make this a challenge. <laughs> this does not have to be a challenge. You don't need much. Um, there's the food. So let's just start with sauerkraut, which is the simplest thing to make. And it's one of the most nutritious. Um, and it doesn't require much. So you need a head of cabbage and you need salt, about a tablespoon of salt, sea salt. Uh, you need a quart sized jar with a lid. And if you don't have the money to buy a whole box of 12, of a dozen canning, uh, quart sized canning jars, go for the wide mouth. If you can't buy a whole box or you don't have any thrift stores, I see them all the time from anywhere from a quarter to a dollar. Inspect them to make sure there's no nicks, broken, you know, chips in the glass anywhere that they're not cracked. Make sure it's good quality. Um, it doesn't have to be new condition, but you just want to make sure it doesn't have any nicks. And with a metal band is ideal. Um, so you're out there 25 cents to 50 cents, you know, maybe a dollar. Some thrift stores have exorbitant prices on mason jars. <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous. Um, You'll probably need a new box of lids. I, I wouldn't want to reuse a lid that I found at a thrift store. So that you're buying in a dozen, and that's, you know, about $5. So we're looking at 5 to $6 for your lids and one jar. And then, of course, there's the food. And presumably you're buying food already. So instead of a head of cabbage for a salad, you're using a head of cabbage for sauerkraut. So I'm going to consider that a, just a wash you know, you're just using food you're already buying. What you need to get is the one jar and the box of lids. So five to six dollars is what you need to get started, Marie. So do it and let me know how it goes. Knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash 96. And last question is from Angela B. I like the last in I like the info I got in your last article. Can't wait to try the pickles. I'm interested in more ideas for dairy-free fermentation. Okay, Angela, I'd love to help you with this. Two issues with dairy. Number one is the ferment itself. Um, is it a dairy-based ferment or is it a non-dairy-based ferment? And there are, there are so many non-dairy ferments. So there's fruits and vegetables and all the different ways you can fix them. Condiments, beverages um, do not have to be dairy-based. So you've got a huge selection there. Chutneys, relishes, condiments, salsa, kraut, preserves, water kefir, um, homemade ginger soda, kombucha, all kinds of things there. Uh, the second issue with dairy fermenting is whether or not you use whey as your starter culture. And you've got a ton of options there. I was just uh, mentioning all of them earlier. Let's go over them again. It's, you do not have to use whey as your starter culture in a ferment. So what can you use instead? Well, the important thing is the, what the whey provides is the organisms that can just get the ferment off to the right start because you're putting in this larger colony. Um, and so that's what whey provides. So it doesn't have to come from dairy. You can get those organisms from other things. And here, here are examples for you. Number one, which is the easiest, is to simply double the salt. You can't do this with fruits. Fruits, you have to have a starter culture. But if it's veggies, double the salt because the organisms for the fermentation are already present on those raw vegetables. You, can't, you also can't do this if it's a cooked vegetable mixture. But if you're starting with raw vegetables, those orga raw organic vegetables, those organisms are present and abundant. So double the salt, the organisms will be happy, and they will create your starter culture for you. Option number two... Um, 
is to use leftover juice from a previous ferment and the same amount as you would whey. So about a quarter cup per, per quarter cup per quart of ferment. So, but just be aware of taste. I mean, if you're making pickles, it'd probably be okay to use sauerkraut juice and vice versa. But if you're making an apple chutney, you probably don't want to use sauerkraut juice or pickle juice. Um, but if it's vegetable to vegetable or fruit to fruit, that's a great option. Your third choice is to use water kefir, which is a um, dairy-free kefir beverage ferment, or water kefir grains. Um, so in terms of the liquid water kefir, just a quarter cup, just like you would the whey. If it's the grains, you're using like a teaspoon, tablespoon of grains and put them right in the ferment. They're edible. And if your water kefir grains are prolific, I've had periods of time where mine are very prolific and times when they're not, it just kind of varies. But if yours are prolific, just toss them in there and plan on eating them. And finally, a veggie starter culture. This I mentioned earlier, there's Caldwell's. Um, body ecology, um, or the veggie starter culture from homesteadersupply.com, and you just use a small amount. I want to say on those that come in packets, the instructions say a whole packet for your like quarter ferment. But we've had traditional cooking school members report, and I have confirmed through my own experience, that you can use like an eighth teaspoon or a sixteenth teaspoon and stretch that packet a lot farther than one use. You can get, you know, eight to sixteen uses. Um, I don't know the exact number. I'd have to refer to my notes, but the point is one versus eight, or even if it's one versus six, you can stretch it a lot farther by using less. You did not need the whole packet. So, um, Angela, those are your options. You do not need dairy at all to ferment. Of course, you wouldn't be making cultured dairy things like yogurt or sour cream, but you don't need dairy as your starter culture. And there are lots of options for, um, ferments that are not dairy foods at all. For you and anyone else, please feel free to follow up with me at the show notes, knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash 96. And I'm going to wrap up now. We've covered a lot of fermenting questions. I want to just remind everyone that we do have those uh, freebies out there, either a fermenting myths free report with troubleshooting information or a fermenting formulas cheat sheet that helps you, just gives you formulas for how to create your own ferments. And those are available free of charge. All you need to do is send an email to me, Wardy, W-A-R-D-E-E, at knowyourfoodpodcast.com, and we'll get those out to you. Thanks everyone for joining me, and once again, hope your Christmas was blessed. And if you're listening to this prior to New Year's, Happy New Year. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope to see you again soon. Let me tell you what you can do next. You can visit the show notes for this episode. Just go to knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash, and then without a space, just type the number of this episode. You'll get links and much more information about what we've been talking about. You can submit questions for future episodes. I love to answer your questions on the air. So go to knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash questions to submit them. You can stop by traditionalcookingschool.com to get five free traditional cooking videos from me. And finally, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, the podcast app, or Stitcher. If you're on a mobile device, just search for Know Your Food with Warty while you're in the app. If you're on a desktop, go to knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash iTunes right in your browser. 
While you're there, please do leave a rating or review. I love to get them, love to read your comments, and they're invaluable to help other people find this podcast. Thank you so much.